if you have self-confidence in your position or belief, it's okay for another person not to hold that belief and you appreciate that they are simply have a different perspective. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, before I get into today's podcast, I have a a small announcement to make. Over the past few weeks, I've been working on an updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, which is now out and available to download on my website. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that in over 20 years of doing this work, I have found to be the most valuable when it comes to raising your level of influence or authority. It's super short. Hopefully it's extremely helpful. Just pop in your email address, no charge, and it will be in your inbox before you can blink. Now, while we're in announcement mode, I'm also working on a newsletter right now that'll be launched in the coming weeks. It's going to be short, weekly summary, direct from me on one tool or strategy that I'm focusing on from the world of influence, plus a roundup of a couple of people and ideas that I'm currently on my radar. If you would like to receive, once again, hop onto the website and register your interest and email address, and we will let you know as soon as it's ready to go. But for now, on with the show. One of the great things about the world of founders and entrepreneurs, the world that I've been a part of for the past two decades, and for anyone in that arena, you'll know that there are a lot of not so many great things, is that you get to choose your landscape. No one is going to walk into your office at two o'clock on a rainy Tuesday afternoon and suddenly announce that you now work somewhere else possibly in a different country, leading a whole new team with a whole new batch of KPIs, stakeholders, and challenges. Such is the world of the organizational leader, the corporate leader who, entrepreneurial and innovative as he or she may be, still needs to exist within a legacy and a structure that is largely out of their hands. Now, don't get me wrong, that journey also comes with definite advantages, mentors, resources, consistency, a carefully refined playbook. But as we all know, The bigger the ship, the more entrenched the culture, and the more the stakeholders, the harder it can be to turn around. Now, honestly, I've never really spent much time on the art of corporate leadership within this podcast. I've always owned and run my own businesses, so honestly, it's not a world I'm deeply familiar with. Plus, I've always tended to believe that we can learn more about influence from the fringes than at the center of business as usual. But, oh, how wrong it seems I have been. Flashback to a few months ago when a publisher colleague of mine handed me a book about to hit the shelves called Why It's Not Always Right to Be Right and Other Hard-Won Leadership Lessons. Now, this book was written by Hamish Thompson. It's a, it's a book that when I sat down and devoured it, beautifully documents the learnings, stories, and strategies that he learned during a 30-year journey from, and these are his words, a fresh-faced account executive in the London advertising scene to the regional president and global brand head for Mars, one of the most iconic and recognized brands on the planet, certainly from my childhood. In this conversation, we dive hard into the namesake of the book, why as a leader it's not always right to be right, and what metric successful leaders focus on instead. Using the 30% rule to light a fire under any team or target, anyone that wants to get serious traction will want to take some notes at that point. Time on the ball, and why those leaders that truly become iconic are the ones that learn how to stop translating pressure into stress. And I massively resonated with this part of the conversation. The concept of drains and radiators. And how one conversation in a stairwell can pivot an entire organization. And finally, my personal favorite, so much so that it's now written on a post-it note on my desk. I'm looking at it right now. How to stop confusing motion with impact. Probably the piece I've been thinking about the most since we recorded this interview is the part around limiting beliefs or upper limit thinking. You'll hear Hamish talk a lot about the courage that it takes to not only talk about the elephants in the room with his teams, those limiting beliefs around why this will never work, what's been tried before, how that we don't have the resources, 
But he actually takes it one step further. And rather than just talking about it, he gets everyone to place those beliefs on the table, document them, question them, and then agree to release them as a team. And whether you're a solo startup, an experienced leader, or the CEO of a multinational enterprise, that is a powerful and visible commitment to removing whatever blocks stand between where you currently are and what's possible. So on that note, sit back, drive on, stride out, and I'm going to leave you with the insights of the truly incredible veteran of leadership, Hamish Thompson. Welcome to the podcast, Hamish Thompson. Thank you, Julie. Looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to to diving into some of this with you. Um, before we go into, you know, why it's not always right to be right, which just, by the way, breaks my heart as a concept. I want to start off with the first question that I usually ask on the podcast, and that is, is there a particular idea right now that's really influencing you or making an impact with you and it can either be related to your field or unrelated? And the premise being that usually people who have interesting ideas come across the most interesting ideas first. First and foremost, I love the question. It's um, new, it's different. Curiosity uh, it's always been sort of the cornerstone from my side, so I like it. One thing that I've always been fascinated around is the concept which I call untapped potential. Um, and I've always believed, you know, leaders have a role first and foremost to unlock potential within others. Um, and I don't know about the science behind it, but I think there's around 30, 40% of untapped potential within all of us. So the area that I'm fascinated at the moment, and I'm actually um, I'm working with a little global startup called NeuroCare, a little bit of investment within it, is how can we learn to learn better, um, not around functional or technical sort of skills, but almost what's the personal trainer, not for your body, but your personal trainer for your mind. And this whole concept of neuroplasticity and every time you learn something new and insight or a lesson comes through, how does it open up new pathways, make you more curious, um, look for perspective and essentially make your cognitive sort of function the work even uh, even stronger. So it's a, it's a slightly new field. It's been done for a while, but I think it's just starting to come in at the moment in regard to not only support for depression, ADHD, anxiety, uh, but also the, probably the next stage for corporate athletes, high performance, uh, cognitive performance. So that's the area. Um, early days, but I'm finding it absolutely fascinating. And are we are we talking about speed of learning here? Like our ability to learn at a rapid pace? I think so. I think it's speed of learning, but equally it's efficiency and effectiveness of learning. Um, and... You're aware as well, Julie, but the amount of information uh, overload that we're getting, the, the amount of breadth and perspective that we get exposed to on a daily basis, how can you take those areas in that are most relevant for you, uh, that align with your passions and your drive and your focus where you want to actually make choices of putting your limited time? And then once you've done that, how can you effectively learn to be learn more effectively and more efficiently? Uh, and obviously that involves speed as well. Um, and it's we've probably all done this. You know, I've done this over many years with leadership teams, obviously looking at strategic agility and sort of unlock, um, you know, brainwave patterns through mindfulness and breathing and meditation techniques. But um, I think this whole idea of neuroplasticity, it's, um, it's, it's there and uh, it's hopefully is going to be sort of the next unlocker uh, for increased performance. And it's interesting that you went there first because a, a conversation that we were just having off air about parenting and we were talking about what age makes the largest impact with our children. You know, is it zero to five, five to 10, 10, 15, 15 plus. And we were both saying that our belief was, you know, that, that old age adage that, you know, show me 
know, give me, give me a boy to the age of six and I'll show you the man. And that that period of time there becomes the foundational code. If you look at it from a tech perspective, you know, if you look at the hardware versus software, that becomes the hardware, the code, and you can recode yourself as a human being, you, you know, code changes, but that foundational code is laid at that point. And so you're talking about neuroplasticity there, and it's being able to look sometimes at that code, at the foundational lessons that were given to us and rewire our brain, the knowledge that we can be rewired that we can look at, at the world through fresh eyes and actually rewire our own brains. And I think the, the beauty of rewiring is, yes, at a foundational level, um, you're obviously more open and more receptive to rewiring, um, but equally, um, all the sciences show that you can do that at any age, even those who are experiencing dementia. If you create the right patterns and brainwave patterns to make your mind more receptive, you can suddenly open up and uh, go within new directions or going back again onto that untapped potential um, that you didn't think was possible. But it's um, it's interesting. I think most people think, <coughs> excuse me, most people think that the older they are, the more closed they are to new ways of learning, new opportunities, when in essence with your experience, you probably should have a thirst for curiosity that you haven't had before um, and more of an openness to learn and go within a different direction. Personally, um, I find that fascinating. As I said, I love new and different and always wanting to sort of look at the next best thing. Um, sometimes that has limitations, moving too quickly for others. Um, but uh, I think, uh, again, it's um, if you can unlock that potential within yourself and others, it's a pretty cool feeling. Well, I'm going to take that as, as a segue because that's a lot of what we're going to dive into dive into today. I loved, I loved your book. I read it cover to cover, which is rare for me. I'm usually more of a, give me the Ted talk version kind of a person. Um, and what some of the, you know, the core things that I got out of it were around leadership were around transformation, which, you know, as you've just said, a thirst and a curiosity, but also probably bringing other people with you on that journey. Because you you don't go on that journey alone. Well, you can, but you won't get very far. So I wanted to start. I wanted to start off with the premise of the book. And there's a quote on the back cover that says, "There are some people who like to be right every single time. At times, I have been that person, and it doesn't make me proud." Why? Well, firstly, why put that on the back cover? But also, why why was this the premise of the whole book for you? I think it's probably because over many a year now, and I'm unapologetic, I'm a typical corporate uh, type individual. Um, and even though I've done different sort of roles in industries and geographies, probably sort of coming up 30 years now, um, it's amazing how often, and I was definitely part of this, that you think your success is going to be down to intellectual horsepower. Um, your technical and functional skills and abilities. But over time, it very quickly became obvious that true success, and when I talk around true success, I'm talking around enduring success, um, doesn't really come down to individual transactions or individual results based on your technical or functional brilliance. It does come down to those that depth and quality of relationships that uh, you've had over many years. And I personally, I was one of those uh, people, and I still am, I'm a very competitive and very driven, results-oriented individual. Um, but so many times I may win a transaction, win a situation, think that I'm right, hammer my point on that I'm right, become more dogmatic if somebody does not believe that I'm right. And even though I may have uh, believed I've won that initial interaction, and even talking around winning uh, is an issue, um, it was really more importantly around what's that enduring relationship, depth of relationship that has come up. And it's, um, it's taken me a while to do it, but I've observed this within so many leaders that when you follow that winning at all costs environment, it can be very short term. And you won't get that opportunity for transformation and breakthrough through partnership um, if you're looking at individual transactions, win or lose relationship. So that's really sort of the, the premise behind it. I understand why people go through that because 
you're accustomed, right, from almost from day dot and early age um, to be wanting to win, get your point across, influence, um, versus actually truly having an enduring mutuality of partnership going through. So that, that's the premise from the book. Um, I think it relates, um, and most people I talk to, particularly those who have gone through this and experience, uh, definitely resonate with the concept as well. Does that make sense, Julie? Yeah, it does. It's really, it's interesting to me because, again, just putting two and two together in my own brain here, you go back to, again, that wiring that we were talking about. If you look at how we're wired from a from an influence perspective, it's often in an adversarial way. Not necessarily fighting, not necessarily aggressive, but you versus me, my point versus your point, my product versus your product, um, my promotion versus your promotion, my company versus your company. And you know, if you look at how we do politics, you have one side of the <laughs> one side of the bench, the other side of the bench. They literally face off each other, and yet, and yet, the the mo- the people who do the, the best, the people who rise the highest are the ones that can bridge, that can bring two sets of people together who may even have different agendas and find what they have in common. It's this amazing book that they once wrote about politics, which is a, called A Team of Rivals. How do you pull together a team to get to an outcome when they might not necessarily agree? And you... You put this quote from your mum in the book. And it's, again, this is going to be the first time I've ever quoted somebody's mum on the podcast. When you have true confidence in your idea or position, another person doesn't have to be wrong in order for you to be right. And I actually, I, t- I kind of closed the book at that point and, and made myself a cup of tea because I wasn't quite sure what to take from that. And, you know, I, I've kind of worked it out in my own brain, but what did you take from that? You know, you've got your mum giving you that piece of advice. It's not an easy piece of advice. It's quite complex. No. And, um, it's interesting. I've, I've thought to myself, did she give me that advice because I needed it at the time or was she seen a behavioral trait within me that she, she thought she needed to address? I think what I took from it is that if you have self-confidence in your position or belief, it's okay for another person not to hold that belief. And you appreciate that they uh, simply have a different perspective. Now, I'm a, um, I'm, I'm a very firm believer that there are very few things that are either right or wrong within the world. It's just everyone has a different perspective. Some people go to new companies and will say this company is not right at all. It's just uh, <clears throat> their values, their principles are not right. I don't view it a case of right or wrong. It's just different and it may not be applicable for you as an individual. So when um, when I heard that from my, my mother, um, it basically – said to me that if you have confidence within your position, um, it's okay to accept that somebody else doesn't have that. And I value relationships, sorry, I value interactions that I have now completely different than I used to. I used to value it on, have I won? Have I had a benefit? Have I had an immediacy of a result that has come out of that interaction? Very seldom now, do I actually have that? It is more a case of, has my depth of relationship with this individual, with this customer, supplier, partner, um, has it been enhanced as a way of that relationship and that interaction? Um, And that means even if I compromise and even if I don't get this initial result uh, or the transactional benefit that I was after, um, it's actually more successful based on that depth of relationship. And there's a chap you may be aware of. Um, he wrote uh, one of the critiques within the book, like John uh, Burgess uh, from Quan Consulting. And he talks around almost this silent or invisible network. When you're not in the room, who's going to play an advocate for you? And so many times over the years, when you have a depth of relationship that is based on mutual trust and enduring respect, those benefits come back time and time again, even when you're not in the room. I remember one of the journeys very early on, I was taken to a personal development seminar. It's kind of the beginnings of my of my journey in that world. And I remember a quote from that and they said, which irritated me at the time, but has stuck with me over years. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in a relationship? 
And that quote has come back to haunt me so many times, you know, because we have, we all have to make that choice at various points in various points in conversation, various points in relationship, various points in leadership where do I want to be right here or do I want to, or do I want to strengthen this relationship? What's more important to me? And the choice you make in those moments dictates the success of the culture, of the company, of the team, of the network that you build. But it's, it can be so hard, especially when you believe really strongly in your position. It can be really hard to let it go. What have you learned practically about those moments of having to let go of the position that you're holding? I think even more so I've learned that as a leader of others, and unfortunately, I believe senior leaders are probably more guilty of this than the, um, the more emerging or junior leaders, is that unless you do let go, unless you do compromise, and unless at times you follow a path that, even though it may be different from your path, but it's an acceptance of someone else's, um, one, you won't get the benefit of results, but secondly, you will close off all other people around you from suggesting alternate positions than your own. And senior leaders, based on a history of success, based on a history of strategic academic brilliance that, they've, uh, that many of them have had, unfortunately, they can be more closed off. Now, I'm starting to have gone through a journey probably over the last 10 years where I will try and value someone else's perspective and viewpoint ahead of my own. And I always start off with, if they're thinking left, why am I thinking right? And at the start of my career, it would have always been, well, if I'm thinking right, why the hell are they thinking left? And the beauty of it, Julia, just uh, it opens you up to new ways of thinking perspectives. But if you get that wrong, the person below you within the position will almost be resigned to thinking, there's no point challenging. I'll never win this. Uh, their agenda is always the right way. And um, I'm just so anti in regard to closed off mindsets and all. So that's probably, I think I'd say, it's just the right way to do it. Um, but equally, as you said, sort of on the on a personal sort of basis and developing that relationship, um, the amount of times when you think you are right on a particular situation and you may become more pragmatic, more logical, years down the path when you sort of look back, A, you may not feel proud of your position, but equally B, you often look at it and think, hmm, gee, I was actually, uh, I wasn't right. My position at the time in reflection through rumination, <laughs> through experience, you look back and think, gee, okay, I should have taken a different path. What I love about what you just said is it it involves a basic underlying assumption that you are hopefully not the smartest person in the room. An assumption that that you have surrounded yourself with people who are hopefully smarter than you are. And I was actually reading a book just this weekend by a venture capitalist and he was talking about what he looked for when it came to investing in, in emerging companies. And that's one of the things, that was one of the major things that came out for me in that book, which was people who, the most exceptional leaders, the ones that you can predictably assume will get where they want to go are the ones that deliberately surround themselves with people who they believe to be smarter than they are. I think that's, uh, that's brilliant, isn't it? To me, the smartest person in the room is that person who knows that they're not the smartest person in the room. Um, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a simple sort of analogy on it, but if you surround yourself by exceptional people, particularly not yes people, um, which is another uh, guilty sin of all leaders, including myself, in the, hopefully in the past. But uh, again, if they value another person's opinion ahead of their own, uh, to me, that's uh, incredibly smart. And there, yes, there always is a decision on a hierarchy of decision making. Um, and uh, leaders have to actually uh, come to that realization that uh, they'll make that sort of call at some stage. But uh, no, I, th I think you're uh, you're absolutely spot on. Talk to me about drains and radiators. When I got to this part of the book, there was I was like, oh yeah, that that I know that world. It's uh, I, I love the term on my. I, I think just probably if I take a step back, I've done this. Uh, 
what a fast-moving consumer goods and traditional sort of marketing probably in the in sort of CEO gigs for 12 to 20 years. I've been in wonderful companies and they had sports and then advertising and everything before. And even though the different industries, different cultures, geographies, it always comes down to the same, that when you have positive people around you, life is so much easier. And the whole drains and radiators concept, um, everyone claims it was their own concept. I've heard multiple people, industries claim it. Um, it definitely wasn't mine, but uh, it came from the head of a global advertising agency. And so the story goes that he stood at the top of a uh, flight of stairs in the all beautiful surroundings of a global agency and got everyone in the room and talked around the concept of drains and radiators. And it's a pretty easy one to get. A drain is exactly what a drain stands for. Um, it sucks the lifeblood out of possibility. It's limiting beliefs, it's negativities, it's pessimism, etc. Um, and then a radiator does exactly what uh, it says. It radiates possibility. Uh, it's not a Pollyanna, and that's an important. It doesn't, um, it doesn't mean that you don't challenge or question things. But it looks at things as possible, um, and it has a mindset of can do. And essentially, the story went uh, that uh, after describing the drains and radiators concept, um, said that anyone's a radiator within this business will go far, very far. But if you're a drain, you can uh, bugger off now. And uh, apparently, used a little bit more colourful language within that. But uh, the message I think is exactly right. And over the years, I've spent so much time doing engagement surveys, great place to work surveys, um, motivational, satisfaction, happiness surveys, etc. And whilst they're all very beneficial, if I had one opportunity ahead of anything else, I would surround myself and the business with radiators of possibility, can-do attitude that is infectious right across the business. Uh, and I would move with rapid pace on getting rid of drains out of uh, the business. I love the you had a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson in your in your book, which I love. People do not seem to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of their character. Now I, I hadn't I had never come across that before, and it's a bit of a you know punch you in the face kind of a kind of a quote because you think, wow, all right, that's you know every word that comes out of my mouth is a confession of my character. Every, you know, whether I have a positive viewpoint or a negative viewpoint, it speaks to it speaks of me in terms of my lens on the world. And I just yeah, I loved I loved that. And I think, you know, I don't have an office right now, but if I did, I'd be putting that on the wall somewhere. <laughs> it is uh it's it, it is good. There's a it's in the old marketing, it's a Byron Sharp uh, analogy that's looked at between the difference between attitudinal and behavioral. So people may claim uh, an attitude, but their behaviors can often be different, um, vastly different uh, in some cases. And thus, you should always focus on actual behaviors. Language to me, or what comes out of people's mouths, I think is a direct um, ahead of an attitude. I think it is a behavior. And that behavior radiates right across uh, right across themselves, but also their teams and in the cases of uh, senior players, right across an organization. Um, and I think it's just so important that you inspire the rest of the business, the organization, with positive can-do people don't have limiting uh, values. They can inspire a vision and a purpose. Um, but again, I will, I will say that getting those people in those positions, it doesn't mean that you can't be a provocateur, a challenger, um, and question status quo or question direction. Uh, you still want those, uh, want those people. Um, yet the most draining thing, excuse the pun, is when you are in these future vision setting programs that should be the most um, and awe inspiring sessions that you have, and somebody talks around historical experiences, limiting beliefs. This is why it can't be done. We can't enter a new adjacency. Um, our market is saturated. Our market is mature. 
Um, just the word saturation and mature probably sort of fires me up even more <laughs> to say that it is possible. So you want the balance, but um, yeah, I love the concept. I think there's also an important distinction to be made there around that. I don't take that to mean that you just need to surround yourself with visionaries because there's a, there's a risk there, right? You surround yourself with people who are big thinkers, blue sky thinkers, blue ocean thinkers, and there's another there's another type of human being that's very very necessary for the success of an organization such as a CFO or your accountant and you know something that i've seen many founders and entrepreneurs and you know myself i've also been guilty of it is almost wanting to avoid those conversations because those are the conversations that pull you right back down to earth those are the conversations that feels feel like drains often where you're like, okay, all these big plans, but here we are, and I'm looking at a PL and you know, right back down to earth again. So it's not it's not the inability to have hard conversations or very um, practical fact-based conversations or to be able to take in bad news. It's different to that. How would you language that distinction? Having diversity of view and diversity of thought within a and let's just take a leadership team as an example, is incredibly important. And you want those challenges and you want those differences of opinion. And when you actually do get um, disagreement and at times when you do get attention uh, because of disagreement, it actually makes your end position that much more compelling and also a strength of conviction, you've gone through the situation of really questioning the decision-making, questioning the different views, um, going, doing full due diligence because of a difference of a point of view. And I think those crucial conversations, they are incredibly important, but I'll probably link this back to you can only have those crucial conversations and appreciate someone else's difference of view, no matter how divergent it may be, when you've actually created a team environment uh, of true care and of true trust, and when you have that team environment, you actually encourage, particularly as a leader, you want that difference, uh, you want that CFO to be raising a perspective and being more of a reality person than maybe your crazy <laughs> creative CEO or uh, chief marketing officer. So you want those sort of views, but that's a uh, it's a tough job of a leader. But that's the one that you want to allow that psychological safety. It's okay to have a different uh, different viewpoint. And the other thing, just coming back, you I liked what you sort of mentioned that you don't want everyone to necessarily be the most. Um, out there, uh, creative, strategic thinker. Um, the importance of executional excellence is absolutely critical within any organization. However, creativity can still exist within executional excellence. So everyone has a different role to play. Some people may be thinking of strategic elements about how to position themselves through the correct focus and choice of new strategic adjacencies, new focus areas to go after. But the executional excellence, probably nine times out of 10, hopefully bringing the most innovative and creative ways to do that effectively um, is probably the most important as well. A pivot point there as well is around meaning. So, you know, we all, we all have facts within an organization. We all have an area that we're responsible for. And we can deliver those facts, be they good news or bad news, to any member of the team or leadership or shareholders. But it's the meaning that we make of them. So, you know, if the, the financial facts aren't great, then, you know, you can make of that meaning we're all doomed. Or you can make of that meaning, you know, we, we have some serious challenges ahead, but with those come some opportunities. And here are some ideas for what I think those might be. You know, it's a, it's not a question, as you said, of Pollyanna. It's a question of the meaning you choose to make from the facts that you are responsible for. Yeah, I like that, uh, I like that term meaning. It's um, Most people automatically think of meaning, meaning vision. But um, I think in this case, when you're talking around that, I take out of this around how can you have full transparency and provide that clarity of what this actually means, what's our situation is at the moment. And 
think all good leaders that uh, I've experienced on that, when they share that transparency and the meaning behind a position or equally the meaning behind a decision, even if it's tough, um, including showing some of that vulnerability, um, people just open up to it. They understand it. Even hard decisions, hard communication points that are made, when somebody um, explains the meaning behind it with true personal empathy and care and reality and transparency, um, I, I think people get it. And one of the things that I've always found incredibly difficult as a as a leader right throughout my career, and I think I've got better at it, is actually explaining the reasons behind tough decisions, um, why we've had to go down this particular area, why a factory has to, uh, has to close, um, why an organizational design element is, uh, has been needed. Um, and when a leader shows the personal connection and the pain and the anguish that you go through to make those, um, I think the decision is the decision but people actually get and understand it. And I've always been one, a lot of coaches have told me over the years, you have to separate your personal position from your business position. So let's just take organizational design changes. They talk around, no, don't make it personal. It's just business, move on. My view is whenever you make a decision, no matter even if it's a necessary one and correct one, if you don't have personal angst, when that decision is going to impact the life of one, a hundred or a thousand other people, you're just a manager as opposed to a leader of others. So getting that sweating over that decision itself is incredibly important. It's always one of my least favorite cliches in business. You know, this, it's not personal, it's just business. And, you know, there's a, there's a truth to it where, whereas, you know, there are times when your personal preferences can't get involved. You know, you, you need to assess the facts and make a clean decision. However, what I find is at the beginnings of any relationship, everybody wants the other party to take it personally. You know, I want you to personally care. I want to personally care about this. I want to put the, you know, every essence of my creativity and my intent into this. And I want you to do the same. I feel like we start out wanting it to feel personal and wanting to bring our personal self to it and for the other person to do the same. And then it's towards the end when we want to you know, when it hasn't necessarily gone well and we want to distance ourselves out, then we get to this place where we're like, well, it's not, you know, it's not personal, it's just business. It always feels like a bit of a, um, I don't know, cloak to me to, to separate yourself out from a decision that, you know, maybe if you looked at it from another angle, you wouldn't be that proud of. Yeah. It's so easy to do as well though, isn't it? You divorce yourself from a particular situation um, and it's not, I'm, I'm not saying it's right, but it's just different. And I know my personal leadership style and approach, um, I don't think I can actually divorce uh, myself from that. Um, and if I do, as I said, I view myself as, uh, I would view myself as an effective manager, but I wouldn't see myself as, a, as an effective leader. Um, and I think that comes down to on your sort of personal values as well. Um, and the, I've always sort of had these about trust, dignity, and respect. And I think um, each of those, to garner those with others and the respect and the trust element, um, I think it is important to uh, to be on that personal wavelength as well, to feel the pain, the difficulties that others go through. And I think when you do understand that, that's your opportunity, one, to actually get the best out of them, to unlock that potential. I said earlier, Julie, that to me is the, the job of the biggest job of any leader, I think, is to inspire and unlock potential within others. Um, but equally, uh, I think it's uh, it's actually just showing compassion um, and empathy uh, for a pretty tough situation that uh, unfortunately some decisions place others within. And to take something personally does not mean that you need to focus on making popular choices. To take, as you've said, 
beautifully to take something personally means that you acknowledge that this has personally been a very difficult choice for me and I have anguished over it. And I understand the personal impact on the other party of the choice that I'm about to make. It's coming from that place as opposed to a, it's not personal, it's just business. As a leader, the difference between being respected and liked, and um, I think it's a, what would Margaret Thatcher say, and it's probably uh, in your English days, you'll you'll know very well in regard to Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> One of my very early early leadership faces on the television. Yeah, no, I'm a I'm quite a uh, non-political sort of person, so I'm not really her policies and things. Um, it's uh, I'll put that aside, even though the mere mention of that, and I mentioned to you before, uh, Julie, that I lived in the north of England for many years. If I dare mention uh, Margaret Thatcher's name uh, within there, I'd almost be shot for even considering it. But uh, put, putting her things sort of aside, there's there's an article that I read in a quote, I think it was a Harvard Business Review article, and it talked around her, the importance of being respected, but she said, but you didn't need to be liked at all, um, particularly in regard to difficult decision-making. And I get that. And I've mentioned also my father used to talk around that as well when going from a position of a salesperson to a sales manager. Um, you almost had to put a new line there that uh, it was more around respect than friendship. And I've questioned that over the years because I asked myself, who are those people and those leaders who I have stepped up and have done more than my job description, more than my pay band? Um, and have almost walked over coals for. And one, it's always those leaders I've respected. So there's no question around that. And I'll never, if you don't have respect, you'll never have a crucial conversation. You'll never get the most out of people. Um, you'll get nodding, but you won't actually get action and behavioral uh, impact from others. So respect always was the case. However, those people who I did over and above for were also those leaders that I genuinely liked. Um, I developed a personal relationship with them. I liked what they stood for. I liked their approach, um, but I genuinely liked them as people. And I've always thought, and I'm, again, I'm not saying this is right because I've heard coaches uh, say differently, the best leaders and the type of leader that I want to be and I've tried desperately to be, is a leader who is respected, no question, um, but also a leader who is respected and liked. Um, and I clearly say that uh, people who you respect and like, you'll walk over coals to serve them. And uh, the place within one of the quotes, coals are bloody hot, so uh, you have to be pretty committed to do it. I'm just getting a, a different a different thought on it as well while we're talking, which is I'm thinking back to the leaders that I've worked with that, again, I would walk over hot coals for and who are many of whom are still still in my life to this day. And for me, it was less about respect. Absolutely. So let's just take that off the table. That had to be there. It was less around like because there was there were definitely days when I didn't like them. There were definitely days when I didn't like their choices. There were days where I didn't like their decision. I didn't like the feedback that I had received. I didn't like the bar I had to reach. I didn't, you know, there were, I for me, and this is my personal opinion, it was less about like, and it was more about, did I, did I trust their intent? Did I trust their intent? Because if I trusted their intent, I would get over those times when I didn't necessarily like this particular moment. If I trusted their intent, I would follow them regardless. And I think that f for me as a leader, you know, it's a it's a high bar to be liked. You know, to to for every decision you make that everyone is going to like that every day you're gonna you know you're gonna show up as somebody that every single human being likes. But to have your intent be trusted means that firstly you have to vocalize your intent. You have to actually make your intent known your intentions known. Um, and you need to make it a vernacular of the entire organization of the entire team. And you need to repeat it frequently. So even on those days where someone might not like your decision or, or like you in that moment, your intent is still clear. And yeah, it's a slightly different distinction for me. 
Um, I want to I want to move from here. From you know, we, we're talking about values. We're talking about intent. We're talking about the personal in within the business. I want to go into the business of the business for a second. Um, and specifically, I love this language that you use, which is lighting a fire, because a lot of the teams or the organizations you've gone into needed a fire lit underneath them. And we've all had those moments. And, you know, you, you're saying a lot of these require a, a lighting of a fire, usually a large one. And there's some different ways that you talk about in the book that you did that. And one that I wanted to bring up here is the 30% rule. Because, I mean, I read the 30% rule and I was like, whoa, like you've got to back yourself to put this into play. So, I mean, I'm, do you want to pick this up from here? What is the 30% rule? My mother said I was born with a frown on my face. And uh, it's uh, probably never, never a good thing for you to, uh, to be said from, uh, said from your mother that I'm uh, essentially um, – I have a constant level of dissatisfaction, so I'm always wanting, even when things are going well, status quo is going well, I'm wanting to explore new opportunities, um, et cetera. And probably the best way to put this as a context of a recent CEO survey was done that 90% of CEOs said that in the next three to five years, there'll be a massive business disruption that will exist uh, within, uh, within their business model. However, only 10% of resources were invested to actually get ahead of that curve. And to get ahead of that curve, it's, it's amazing. So the mindset's there, but how you go about doing that and getting ahead of that curve to reach this new business model and disruption that we know will happen is largely unknown. So it's incredibly difficult. And I've always had this concept of the 30% rule. Now, 30% rule, it could be 70% target, it could be 10% target, it depends on micro and macro sort of variables. But essentially, you will set your team within defined areas a stretch target that the only way that that target can be achieved is if they do something completely different from what they're doing today. Normally, that requires external perspective, outside and very innovative or um, or creative solutions, but they cannot do it within the current boundaries. And what that does, I think, is one, it surprises people on what they're capable of. Secondly, and most importantly, it allows them to always stay ahead of the curve, um, looking at things to try and do it, fixing them before they're broke, leading change as opposed to managing change. And it's a concept that I think is can be very daunting for people, but it can actually be incredibly liberating. Um, there's always a watch out on that, though. My style is, yes, I'd want to look at most of the business and put the 30% stretch rule across there. But this is where you want good people around you saying, yeah, get back in your box, Hamish. We'll do the 30%, but we'll do it within a controlled environment. We'll do it within 10, 15% of the business. We'll do it within a learn, test, learn environment that you're not, um, you're not going to be jeopardizing a major core revenue or profit stream within the business. But you want these 30 percenters to be happening right across the business, small, nimble trials, use your global portfolio of markets, use your global portfolio of brands, um, be continually tinkering to try and stay ahead of the curve. Um, some people really get behind it and are energized behind it, particularly radiators, is to go back to the drains. When you introduce that to other people, um, you automatically get that response from a negative person. It's not possible. Um, there are too many limitations. This is the reason why it can't be done, as opposed to, gee, we need to look at a completely new way of working to do this. Um, great businesses and great organizations do that and consistently stay ahead of the curve. Uh, and it's just a, to me, it's just a very practical way of making that happen. But you don't want to do it across your whole business. Continuous improvement is key in, uh, in the majority of the business. I was interviewing, there's a, a, an amazing book called Loon Shots by Safi Bacall and interviewed him on the podcast last year. And he, he said something very similar, which is the, the organizations that are stand out at the moment have small, dedicated teams whose only job is to disrupt the organization. So that their entire remit is if you were going to start a company that put us out of business, 
what would that company be? Go start it. And you're saying something similar, which is here is a target. And you've said between 30 and 70% above existing levels. Here is a target. The only way you can hit it is to by doing things completely differently than we do them right now. Small test group, go do that. And the idea being that, you know, that's not a job for a drain, right? That's a, that's, that's a job that only a, a radiator would take on and certainly achieve. So the drains kind of automatically, as you expand that, automatically kind of fall away. There's an element, uh, Julie, within this that um, at least cultural agencies will talk around uh, being psychological safety. And it's all very well to sort of have a CEO place that 30% sort of task out there. Um, but you need to have a psychological safety environment or mechanism that embraces failure. And those people who take on the leads or the to team environment of those 30% um, stretch targets, it's okay to fail. And when they do fail, you accept that, you actually embrace that. And I was told very quickly that the best way to do that is, uh, is almost twofold. One, you have to demand insight and learnings. So totally okay to fail. You celebrate a success. Um, you don't give people a hard time for it, but you really push and demand insights from those learnings that, uh, that come out. And then secondly, as a leader, when you put those stretch targets out there, it is incredibly important that you empower, you delegate, you don't get into situational leadership where you are involving or directing people to do it in your style. And that's incredibly hard, particularly for perfectionist people. Um, and this is the importance of you support and you coach and develop along the way and you provide resources to, to help. But if somebody wants to go in a completely different direction and you think it's, gee, it's uh, not the direction I would go within, you need to give them that 100% freedom and autonomy to do that. Um, and that's the, that's the way the, uh, the leadership mantra uh, for a stretch target actually works. Uh, because if not, who's going to put their hand up to, uh, yeah, I'll take the lead on that 30%, but I know I'm going to have to do it your way. And if I fail, <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> you also said in the book that limiting beliefs must be openly documented, questioned and removed. And that again is is counterintuitive thinking to me because you you're almost taking what you hope nobody talks about, which is all the reasons why this can't work or shouldn't work, and you're saying no, we need to put every single limiting belief we have about this on the table, question it, and take it off the table. What have you learned about that process? Because that's a again that takes backing yourself. I think I've learned that unless you do it there will always be different agendas and you won't get full team alignment and will probably lead to frustration and probably lead to ineffective results. So you sort of mentioned around lighting the fire to begin with. So when you do have a change management or a change agenda uh, to place there, you hopefully you inspire people with a vision or a possibility, which is always the best way. Other times it is lighting a fire around, here's the reality. Unless we do something different, we're in trouble. But as soon as you place that sort of target and that, uh, that visionary area or necessity area to go after, everyone is going to have their own limiting beliefs. Some of that based on history of good and bad. Some of it based on experience, capabilities, attitudes, beliefs. But unless they're actually raised, they will always be in the background in people's minds. And I found over time that unless you actually get them out on the table within that open environment and document them and agree that, yes, these are limiting beliefs and sometimes they're actually justified limiting beliefs, but let's agree within this project and this ways of working, we will collectively and individually not go back to them, refer back to them, and block progress because of them. As an alternate language to that, um, something that someone gave me recently that I've been using a lot is rather than limiting belief, which in itself can sometimes feel like you almost don't want to own up to it or you don't want to go in inside and find it, upper limit thinking. You know, where do we have upper limit thinking here? Where do we... 
at what at what point do we take progress and then we block it? Where are, where are our upper limits here, and can we get those down and talk about them and move them off the table? And again, I just think it takes such a lot of courage as a leader to do, for anybody to take the elephant that's in the room and put it front and center and say, let's look at it, talk at it, talk about it, stop fearing it, move it out of the way. That takes the kind of courageous leadership that I think is not only needed, but the kind of courageous leadership that really makes change happen, that really pushes the boundaries, that gets to the forefront of industries, the courage to to take the unspoken and talk about it. That's a radiator's language. Um, limiting belief is a drain language, actually, even starting from that. So it's like that element around a change management agenda, as I said before, um, you know, ideally, you want to inspire through possibility of vision as to why we need to change. Um, how do we lead change as opposed to manage it versus we need to change because of position of fear. Um, so, no, I, I really like that upper, upper limit thinking. Um, I was going to talk to you about time on the ball. And I'm, I'm not a massive sports fan, but I am a massive admirer of the All Blacks culture and their, the mandates they have on teamwork. And you talk a, a lot in your book about time on the ball. And you, you, the question that you ask here is that those that you have seen get to the top and, and hold a position there in a healthy way are those who don't translate pressure into stress. And it actually, it reminded me of the All Blacks when I read that because they have this beautiful distinction between intensity and hustle. We don't hustle. Hustle is stress-based language. We manage our intensity. Is that, is that what you're getting out there, that there's a difference between stress, stress and pressure and we shouldn't equate the two? Yeah, I, don't, I think it's hard to distance the two, um, but I think the desire is is to probably keep them separate. And I think the easiest way I've sort of looked at this is that you can always see the same pressures being applied to different people. So the same type of pressure, the same operational targets, intensity issues, whatever they are, um, people often have the same pressure. However, how they respond to that pressure can be dramatically different. And that is whether some people turn that pressure into operational excellence and they just get on with it and won't procrastinate um, and actually thrive off that, or other people, that same pressure level gets uh, within a position of stress, which often leads to exhaustion. A quote that I loved from your book, which relates directly to what you were just saying then, which which is never confuse motion with impact. And I actually, honestly, I'm looking at it now. I have it written on a post-it note stuck to my desk. It's on a yellow post-it note right next to me right now. I ha That is something to remind myself of every single day because I can, similar to you, you know, permanent frown on my face, permanently moving and thinking and trying to adjust and readjust and incremental advances and often – I can mistake those two things. And, you know, you only really know with hindsight when you look back and you think, wow, I've I fiddled with that for probably six months longer than I needed to fiddle with it. And I felt like I was getting so much done. <laughs> Whereas really, if I had just done the most impactful move that I could have done, which was get it out there, get feedback, keep moving, um, I'd be six months ahead of where I am right now. How, how have you learned to tell the difference between those two things? I think the uh, the insight came to me when I first went into a regional role, and um, I've um, I've been very fortunate that I've uh, had operational roles looking after sort of different units, uh, different departments, or sort of geographies and cluster of markets. Uh, but equally, uh, I've had regional and global roles as well, and. The danger of going within a regional and a global role that I found out very quickly, you move a lot of paper, you have a hell of a lot of motion, but at times you don't have a lot of impact. And there's a real balance within that. And that just sort of really sort of became obvious to me, one, when I was in a local market or an operational unit where you were seeing ineffective global or regional um, operations, demands, requests, uh, materials, 
But equally, when you're actually in a regional or global role, you're seeing from your own side that ineffectiveness of activity. Um, so I came up with a concept related to that, Julie, which I termed the three A's. And when you're in a global or regional role, you had to do one of these three things. And if not, um, you would uh, essentially have to exit or stop doing any harm. And those three A's where you either have to assist a local market, you have to add value to a local market, or you accelerate a local market's plan of activities. Unless you do one of those things, just stop doing what you're doing. Um, and it's incredibly hard for a global um, function personnel team to actually have that mindset, but you are essentially a service operation for a local market to make a difference. And that's where Mars Inc. have always been wonderful, their global um, structure, um, right from the family philosophy downwards, was that less global, more around local and operational. I also think that that, that the thing that you came up with, the three A's, assist, add value, accelerate, or if you can do none of those things, exit the situation, I think that's just universal. I think that that is something that as a team or as a leader or even as a parent, you know, unless you can assist, add value or in some way accelerate somebody's progress through something, exit. Like, you know, make the tough call to remove yourself out of this and bring in somebody else that can. And I think that that takes a, a loss of ego, you know, that takes the ability to go, okay, I, I can't, I can't do any of those three things. So I'm going to swallow my pride and my ego. I'm going to step back and I'm, I'm either going to leave them to it or bring in someone else that can be more effective here. So I just think that across the board, that mandate for any team or organization is gold in terms of when you should step in and when you shouldn't. And I think also that everyone knows that time is limited, but uh, it's very interesting. When you take a resource away or you take a specific activity away, um, a lot of people struggle with what they do with their time. So particularly when you operationally immerse yourself, there's always things to do. Um, but again, that's motion as opposed to impact. So particularly at a senior level, it is more around being on top of the business than in the business. I know it's an old cliche, but when you are on top of the business, what is that strategic value add that you are providing to others, um, be that within your own teams or be that to a wider units or markets? Um, is it actually providing new strategic insight? Is it inspiring others? Is it actually looking at a new resource model that allowing processes and procedures and culture to be more uh, effective and efficient uh, than it once was? And that is a different capability and competency set than just being, uh, being operational. And a lot of senior leaders will stay operational um, not because they don't want to add more of a value at a strategic lens, um, but probably they've never actually developed and been trained how to do that as well. So, uh, no, I think I think it's a very important one, and it can be incredibly frustrating for yourself individually when you do step back and you think, gee, what have I actually uh, really achieved apart from going through the motions over that last sort of six months or so? I'm going to close off with my final question now, and it's the question that I've that I've asked kind of since the beginning of the podcast, really. And that is, if I could give you the stage and a microphone and put in front of you every single person that you would want to influence, and I gave you five minutes, what what is it that you would want them to know? Well, I'll probably be uh, boringly repetitive, and I, I'm hoping I wouldn't need five minutes, Julie, but I would be telling people that true success uh, is, not a, is not about always being right. Uh, it is about enduring depth of relationships that they form over time and that those quality relationships will always lead not only to personal happiness but also long-term success. Um, as I said earlier, that if that means compromising on the outcome of an initial transaction, so be it. Um, but that enduring success is absolutely critical and being right is not a uh, is uh, not always the uh, the most important thing. Ahead of everything else, surround yourself with positive people, radiators first, and encourage them to unlock their potential and unlock the potential of others to be their very best. 
Um, secondly, never fall into a position of contentment. It's always around seeking out improvements on a daily basis and always strive to stay ahead of that curve. And as per that Steve Hansen quote, um, you don't need to lose to learn, but it sure helps. So how can you stay ahead of that? And that final one is um, just try and always be 100% authentic, even though it can be daunting. Uh, if you're the same person, your values and behaviors as you are at home as at work, it would be uh, be great. And then finally, I've had sort of maybe the last sort of few seconds uh, to say to a group, I'd mention my favorite quote, uh, which is from a certain racing car driver, Mario Andretti. If you're in control, you're not driving fast enough. And I've always viewed that there's enough clever cookies to put you back on track. So, uh, and you speak to anyone who's gone through their career and what would you do differently and they all say i'd be bolder and i'd go faster so my encouragement to everyone will be i can do that early within your career which ties back beautifully to the time on the ball get as much get as much time on the ball as you can indeed um thank you thank you for thank you for coming on thank you for sharing everything you've shared thank you for your book it was a joy to read and um yeah it's been a pleasure thank you very much julian enjoyable so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.